everyone. Welcome to the All About Animals show. My name is Nikita Dewan, and today I'm so excited to be talking to Nalini Ramachandran. She's the author of Trumpet Calls, The Epic Tales of Extraordinary Elephants, a book which outlines the history, mythology, and status of elephants around the world in a very creative and enlightening style. Nalini is also the editor of many magazines, a content creator, and has authored several children's books and another one called Gods, Giants, and the Geography of India. Thank you so much for joining today, Nalini. How are you? Thank you, Nikita. It's a pleasure being here. I'm good. I'm good. Great. Yeah. And, you know, you've recently published a book and done amazing work and it's all you know quite a variety of things so why uh, can you tell us about your background and how you became interested in writing sure I think I was always interested in writing uh, right from my school days so um, it wasn't really much of a surprise that I got into this full-time professionally but um, I began my media career uh, with television then moved on to other stuff, you know, writing for online portals, um, newspapers, magazines. And finally, I began working with a children's uh, publishing house. And that's where I think I realized how much I loved writing fiction. And uh, over time, I also realized that I could make nonfiction fun and bring stories into it. So um, I think for almost 18 odd years, I have been doing this and uh, it's a great career to have, you know, I mean, who doesn't love storytelling? Yeah. And a lot of the storytelling you do, um, for example, in your book relates to animals. So I was wondering, how did your interest in animal welfare develop and then eventually intersect with writing? Were you always interested in, you know, elephants or was it all animals? How did that develop? So I, when I was working with this children's uh, magazine, um, I realized that uh, animal stories, um, you know, kids relate very well to animal stories, which also explains why we have a lot of um, uh, these uh, anthropomorphic kind of tales where animals are given uh, dialogues and they behave mm-hmm. like humans. And a lot of children relate well to it because then even the animals' issues or conservation issues can be um, told very differently and the emotions are much in place. So they can relate to those emotions when the animals are talking themselves. Uh, I think over time, as I uh, began working on my other books, I realized that there is this um, close association between nature wildlife and culture and uh, a lot of my books whether it is um, God's Giants uh, and the Geography of India or the earlier ones uh, which is uh, Lord of the Land storytelling traditions of India it explores this whole association and um, it was uh, I think one of these uh, stories I was meant to work on a fictional tale where the protagonist was an elephant And for a change, I didn't want the elephant to be human-like in that tale. And I thought maybe let the elephant be just that. And let's see how children relate to that story. So I would conduct workshops and um, I took that story to a lot of schools and kids related very well. So I also realized that they do accept stories of wildlife even when they are themselves, you know. So you don't really have Mm -hmm. to have animals talking or prancing around or wearing clothes 
So that was not really required in uh, the case of animal stories. So while working on that story, I uh, because I had to research uh, on elephant behavior, I came across all kinds of elephants and I realized that nobody had really uh, worked on a children's book um, that would explore elephant history or the you know elephant human association that has been um, very much there in all countries, most I mean South Asian countries especially um, and Africa of course. So I thought, okay, let me try and maybe uh, spotlight the elephant and elephant conservation through stories. And that is when I came across a research paper which said that um, a lot many times people don't realize that uh, animals that they are, you know, um, the uh, animals that they find endearing or charming or animal motifs that we see all around us, uh, people don't think that such animals can even be endangered. And mm. there was a list in that particular research paper where the elephant featured third. So I could absolutely relate to that because I think in India, you find elephant motifs everywhere. You go to temples, you have elephants, you uh, look at festivals, you have elephants. You go to anybody's house, you will always find an elephant, uh, you know, figurine or statue or brocade work, or there are saris and dupattas where people wear elephant motifs. It's a very popular icon. But if you would ask somebody what they thought about elephant status, they might not really be aware that the numbers have been decreasing over the years. So that was the starting point and it made me think very seriously about bringing out a book uh, like Trumpet Calls, but told through stories so that people would understand what is uh, actually going on in the lives of uh, this particular uh, animal. Right, yeah. And I really liked what you said about, you know, children and how they can extend their compassion to other species and animals without the crafting of any humanized qualities. Um, so, yeah. you know, it is really important to highlight that. And uh, you were talking about, you know, the, I guess, uh, the duality between finding these creatures endearing, but ignoring when they're actually threatened. And that, I would say, connects to your title, The Trumpet Calls Were Ignoring That Trumpet, as you mentioned in your book. And you also talked about how elephants are an icon of India, giving many examples. So can you elaborate a bit on the status of elephants in India and how has it evolved from Indian mythology? Just a quick overview of that. Sure. Uh, okay, so it's not just mythology. There is a bit of history as well, but let's look at mythology. See, there are many, many stories, mm -hmm. and uh, not all are, um, as in, not all of them come from Hindu mythology alone. So there are a lot of um, folk stories, uh, regional mythologies, tribal mythologies. So uh, I would believe that each person's association or belief system when it comes to elephants is based on the region uh, that they belong to. But uh, for the sake of, uh, you know, um, let's look at the popular um, stories in India. If you will, uh, so that will most likely take you to the story of Ganesha, who is the elephant headed god. Uh, in Hindu mythology, he is the son of uh, Shiva and Parvati. 
So there is this very interesting story of how uh, Parvati once, um, you know, she didn't find anybody around and she wanted to go for her bath. And uh, because there was nobody around, she created a divine being from the sandal paste uh, on her body. And um, she made that child the guard and said, do not let anybody inside. Now, unfortunately, at that very moment after she goes in, Shiva walks in and the child does not know who he is. Shiva doesn't know who the child is. And there is uh, some kind of an argument between them. Mm. And uh, Shiva becomes extremely angry and he beheads the sandal, uh, I mean, the child made of sandal paste. And when Parvati sees this, obviously she's furious and she says, I don't know what you're going to do, but I want my son back. And Mm -hmm. Shiva realizes that, oh, okay, this has like, this is a grave mistake. And she, I mean, this was a child whom Parvati had created herself. And in his rage, he was so blinded. He just didn't realize that, you know, this is what had happened before. And he uh, sends all his uh, followers and says, just bring me back the first head that you see, because we don't have much time. We have to bring this divine being back to life. And the followers bring back the head of a wild elephant. Now, there are two different versions to the story. Uh, One says that it was the head of a wild elephant. And the other uh, version says that it was the head of uh, Gajasura, another demon. Uh, So there is an elephant-headed demon who gives his uh, elephant head so that the elephant-headed god comes to life, you know. So there is a backstory to that. And uh, But yeah, so this is the version. And of course, you know, um, Shiva brings the child back to life and uh, he names the child Ganesha. So Ganesha basically means... Uh, the one who will remove all obstacles and he is the lord of the people in that sense. So that sentiment has always remained and people believe that if you pray to Ganesha, uh, your obstacles or any challenges or difficulties that you face will uh, you know, completely disappear. And uh, that's also why if you will look, uh, you know, there are in Indian uh, folk theater, uh, a lot many times there is uh, something called the Ganesh Aarti, and uh, people uh, pay obeisance to Ganesha before they begin their act. There are artists, folk artists, tribal artists who will uh, folk artists, sorry, not tribal artists, folk artists who will draw uh, the image of Ganesha on the left-hand corner first, and only then go on and begin, uh, you know, the story that they want to paint later on. And again, so on many uh, sacred occasions, you will have uh, people worship Ganesha first when people are going to begin a new venture, when people are going to buy a new house. So the elephant head in that sense is the auspicious uh, one. You know, the elephant headed God is the auspicious one. Uh, So that is the kind of sentiment. Uh, The other might mythology uh, related to elephants is also that they are believed to be harbingers of rain. So uh, there is this other story where you have, you know, uh, Indra, who's white elephant, uh, together they bring rain, uh, they Mm -hmm. bring back rain that is stolen by another demon. So there are these stories, you know, so when you have uh, very human problems like water or everyday difficulties, people tend to turn to elephants and the elephant headed god. So that is one uh, aspect that has somehow uh, 
today trickle down not today as in since uh, generations but um, the whole concept of temple elephants so people visit temples and if there is an elephant they worship the temp uh, uh, temple elephant and uh, the elephant blesses them uh, so when the elephant blesses them to them it is like the uh, lord ganesha blessing him i mean them himself you know so it's like that it's like the god blessing people directly but through a representative which is the animal elephant so that is one uh, take that i have understood the other is of course uh, history so since the asian elephant population has been you know um, uh, in india and uh, nearby regions uh, the numbers were quite uh, large in those days so if you will look at war history a lot of ancient wars used elephants and i believe india was uh, perhaps one of the first or the earliest um, you know um, populations to have captured and tamed elephants and trained them um, to fight wars of course over time you know they became a symbol of um, royalty because any time you would think of elephants you would think of a king or queen being seated upon um, the elephant and they started being used for sport and uh, for you know again royal festivals processions parades which again you see even today when you have certain important uh, festivals or um, parades or processions uh, e- including marriages you know there are uh, elephants so this is how um, mythology and history have played a role in what elephants are made to do today uh, as far as india is concerned yeah yeah i think everything you said was really interesting and very good context for why elephants are you know very important specifically in india and I think that you talked about the sense of uplifting elephants to a godlike status like Ganesha that again gives context to temple elephants uh as you mentioned there's war and sports that highlight their physical strength so you know I see um different aspects of elephants being highlighted through those different intersections and another thing you talked about in your book was how india drew parallels between the qualities of an elephant and the country's independence after the british rule such as you know patience being having strength being gentle peaceful um and yeah. how you know an elephant basically embodies india so you know i think in one way that comparison is nice since it appreciates how um incredible elephants are but the effect of identifying a country and its people with this animal is you know firstly that you're humanizing the elephant and it can also become a prop for diplomacy and how india represents itself to the world so um talking about that you have a story called the monumental gift where you discuss the history of elephant diplomacy or gifting elephants as diplomatic gifts in india can you explain the story and thinking behind nehru's gift to japan and how that shaped uh, our view on elephants uh yes so to understand that we'll have to go back again a little in time and um, you know to the period of uh, the two wo- uh, world wars world war 1 yeah. and world war 2 
and uh, at that time again you know so there was a lot of ammunition that had to be carried so eventually you know i think they had become um farm animals or um, beasts of burden in that sense so they because of their strength they could carry or um, uh, they would help in transporting a lot of um, goods maybe in uh, sooner than maybe horses could or uh, humans themselves could so again even during these two wars the modern wars uh, elephants uh, helped to ferry ammunition um they pulled aircrafts they uh, helped um, you know ferry uh, soldiers so uh, that was the kind of role that they played but there was another side to it also where they did help in um saving lives or helping refugees so when they were ferrying people it was not always just soldiers it was also common people sometimes and um it was around this time when um yeah so there is another part of it which also ties up with the whole concept of zoos mm-hmm. so you know again it began with this whole entertainment phase uh, where people would uh, especially in america i think there were these uh, travel menageries where they would travel from one place to another so it was like a traveling circus in that sense and you had uh, acrobats and you had all kinds of animals exotic animals now when i'm saying exotic animals it basically meant that animals that weren't found uh, in that particular region so mm-hmm. they had to be purchased from different places around the world different countries and um, often elephants uh, were taken to america either by uh, i mean either uh, from africa or uh, south asia india especially so uh, that whole entertainment phase where you had zoos circuses uh, flourishing because i think zoos uh, from traveling uh, menageries the whole concept of stationary zoos might have developed and people would pay to go and see these animals that they would otherwise not be able to see in their particular neighborhoods so while it was a form of entertainment i am guessing it was also a form of education because in those days travel may not have been that developed as it is today so people wouldn't be able to travel to the countries where these animals uh, actually belong to but maybe it was easier to find the elephant in a neighborhood zoo as opposed to you know and maybe not everybody was able to afford the travel uh, also so for children a lot of people animal enthusiasts who might have wanted to study different kinds of animals the zoo became or the traveling menageries became a starting point and uh, as these zoos developed over time you know there was a barter system they would exchange animals and stuff but when it came to the time of uh, these two world wars the zoos were posed with a big problem uh, also they believed because they thought okay if there is an air raid uh, or if there is uh, some kind of bombing that happens over the zoos premises um and if the wild anim- uh, animals escape that might um endanger the lives of the people living nearby so to uh, prevent something like that from happening a lot of zoos um, 
especially you know at that time in um uh, actually a lot of zoos london sheffield um, even in uh, tokyo all these zoos decided to put uh, some of their animals to sleep um, those animals obviously were the ones who they thought could cause a problem if they were let out of the cages or enclosures um, unattended and it was at such a time during world war 2 when uh, three popular elephants in uh, tokyo had to be put to sleep and as a result what happened at that time was that in all of japan there were no elephants at all except in one particular zoo which was higashiyama and uh, because it was war time and the children in uh, the country or those um, regions were stressed out uh, there was this thought that going and seeing elephants brought delight to the children and it did you know because i think uh, a lot of these menageries also in earlier time circuses etc in war torn regions they uh, offered some kind of respite from the tension of war so that is how this whole concept of elephant train uh, there was an elephant train that used to run from tokyo to uh, nagoya and uh, it was only so that a number of children would travel and go and see elephants uh, in the higashiyama zoo because those were the only elephants alive at that time and it was around this time again when um, there were these uh, two particular children seventh graders who wrote a letter to uh, their um, government agency local government body saying that you know okay we i mean there are these things but can we please have an elephant in tokyo as well and uh, there was one uh, particular journalist who thought this might you know um, become uh, as in if this wish could be granted by anybody at all it could be by the then prime minister of india jawaharlal nehru and uh, so he and the local government body in tokyo collect uh, i think they collected more than 1000 letters from children saying that this is their wish and so these letters were brought and handed uh, handed over personally to uh, pandit nehru and when he opened the letters he was quite astonished because it was obviously a very strange request you know but he loved children and uh, it's also possible that like we just you know you just uh, spoke about it the whole idea of representing india uh, to the world as a helpful or um, peaceful nation and um, i think it was important to him at that time because um, india had um, you know freshly gained independence so maybe it was a new india uh, or the image of a new india that he wanted to portray so that is how he um, ended up accepting this request and um, a particular uh, elephant was chosen from mysore and he named the elephant after his daughter indira and that is how you know i believe uh, the first of the set of elephants that were uh, uh gifted as uh, a part of elephant diplomacy were uh, uh, as in they were sent out 
So it began with this particular request from children in Japan. But I think over time, a lot of other kids started sending him these requests because this story might have gained popular press at that time, you know, enough press. And uh, that is how elephant diplomacy became a thing. And elephants were uh, transported to different regions of the world. Uh, yeah. And uh, but again, I think. Mm, as decades passed and uh, uh, in India we realized that okay the elephant status is uh, not the same as it used to be and of course the, even if the qualities that India embodies are still the same as what the elephant stands for we needn't really do this because we are putting uh, the animal through a lot of trauma in that sense and a lot many times so there was this new awareness and conservationists took it up and they said that, okay, you know, diplomatically or not, I mean, that's a different thing. But if you look at it from the view of conservation, it's not a great idea because a lot of these zoos may not be conducive to keep elephants. They might not have the kind of food that elephants are supposed to eat. And that might become a problem because uh, every individual uh, animal is important. Yeah, and you also mentioned uh, towards the end of the chapter that they uh, stopped, he wanted to ban the gifting of Indian elephants as zoo animals and how the Central Zoo Authority sent a letter saying that elephants should no longer be housed in zoos. Um, you know, it's unfortunate that hasn't been taken to effect yet, but I think that um, that evolution is very interesting. And, you know, using animals as props for diplomacy, I mean, also panda diplomacy for China. So, you know, it just is across the world. And I think India has, you know, a pretty um, unique um, connection to elephants. So that's why I found that interesting. And yeah. I was wondering, um, what is your personal favorite story uh, in the book? And can you tell us about it? I know it's probably hard to choose since it's very difficult. Uh, so, I mean, um, there are quite a few stories that are uh, interesting on various levels. But, um, okay, so I think I would pick the story of uh, a particular elephant named Bandula. And uh, again, this goes back to the time of uh, World War II. And Bandula happened to be working in... Uh, uh, you know, uh, wood, uh, teak wood, uh, logging industry, basically, in Burma at that time. And um, so he, uh, Bandula, formed a very uh, close uh, association with um, the owner or, uh, you know, the person who was heading um, that particular um, corporation. And... Um, he uh, so his name was John, uh, James uh, Williams James Howard Williams and uh, he and Bandola happened to share a great equation and um, Williams happened to notice that you know a lot many times the way elephants are trained was quite harsh and uh, but Bandula was trained in a very different way because uh, there's something called positive uh, uh, reinforcement where there is a reward system and if the elephant does something well or learns something quickly then uh, he or she is given a reward most likely food uh, so that was the kind of uh, training method that was used by 
this Bernie's uh, Mahout called Port, okay? I hope I'm pronouncing names correctly. But um, so Williams was quite uh, enthralled by that and he set up uh, an elephant training school there where he thought that positive reinforcement should be the only kind of method used because if they're doing so much for uh, mankind, then the least we could do is treat them respectfully. And uh, so over, uh, I think, uh, the entire phase when he worked with these elephants in the logging industry, he knew more than 100 elephants by name, which is fantastic. And uh, it was around the time when, uh, again, you know, uh, World War II was gaining momentum and uh, Burma, which is known as Myanmar today, was at a risk of being... Um, captured so there were enemy forces all around and Williams was most bothered about the safety of the elephants who worked for him with him and uh, he came up with this uh, great escape plan and he you know spoke to uh, all the elephant handlers and said okay we need to escape with these elephants and he realized he could take only 53 of them although there were more and uh, there was a plan where they would have to cross five mountain ranges between Burma to India so that they could safely reach Assam. And uh, initially, the handlers were a little um, worried because they weren't really sure if elephants would climb these mountain ranges. But they figured that that was the only way out. There was a new problem when um, the local authorities said that you will also have to take a few refugees because they're not safe here. And Williams agreed, but he knew that it was going to be a very, very, very difficult task. And uh, the whole, I think, once the plan was in place, they had to choose a lead elephant because um, the way these herds are, usually there is this... Um, you know, where these uh, female elephants form a herd and there is a matriarch, so the oldest or wisest, I mean, oldest elephant is their leader. And there are these bachelor groups where you have, uh, you know, all these uh, male or bull elephants. And uh, again, they're usually the uh, oldest male becomes the leader. So, but when it comes to an entire herd, uh, often, the matriarch or a female elephant would be taken into consideration to become the leader because, you know, again, she will know the way she will take the right decisions, etc. But for some reason, in this case, Williams thought that Bandula, who was a bull elephant, should be uh, leading the entire herd. And the elephant handlers thought about it and they thought, okay, you know, he is quite liked by the entire herd and they might listen to him. But again, there was no way they could predict what Bandula would do or how the entire herd would behave. And that is how Bandula became the leader. And uh, they began this entire journey and I think they reached a particular point where they realized that the only way uh, to cross over or you know move ahead from that region was to climb uh, this uh, vertical cliff face and again Williams and the team didn't really know what to do because you know with humans refugees itself it was quite a big issue and um, having elephants 
climb a vertical face was something that they hadn't really seen before. So, but still, I think the team figured out and said, okay, let's make like a very rough elephant stairway so that there is enough space uh, for, uh, you know, the elephant to have its footing right. And they created a very rough path, uh, you know, along this uh, vertical face. And um, everything depended on Bandula because he was the leader of uh, the whole uh, herd. And Potoke was leading the entire uh, team and he had given very clear instructions to everybody saying that there should be pin drop silence. Now imagine if you know there were children also uh, as a part of this uh, refugee group so it must have been very difficult to explain to these kids that you shouldn't cry, you shouldn't talk, you shouldn't ask questions when this is happening but I'm guessing everybody followed these instructions because um, any kind of distraction would have led the whole group uh, to doom. So again, you know, so I think the very first step was taken by Bandula. He climbed onto the very first uh, rough elephant stair uh, step. And um, he stood there uh, apparently for almost 10 minutes without moving. And um, again, everybody was just watching him quietly. Nobody was sure of whether he would you know, take the next step or come back down because if he came back down, it would mean that all the other elephants would refuse to climb mm. and the escape would have obviously not been possible. So, you know, um, but after those 10 long minutes, Dula took the next step and the next step and the next step and in about an hour, he reached the halfway mark and um, so Williams was excited because Williams had gone up before the entire group and uh, waited at the halfway mark and he was extremely um, excited and I think he just saw elephants in a very different new light because this was something nobody in that team might have expected that they would do. And it took about three hours for, um, I think, Bandula to make the entire ascent. And slowly the other 52 elephants followed and then the women and the children because the refugees group was made up mostly of women and children. Mm -hmm. And all of them came up. And uh, that is how, you know, the big crossover from Burma to Assam happened. So it's just, I think this is uh, one of my favorite stories, not just because uh, Bandula showed a lot of... Um, I think he understood the problem. He understood the responsibility that was that he was entrusted with. He knew that the lives of so many people and you know his herd depended on him. He knew it was a risk. He knew that anything could go wrong because if any of them had to be afraid and look down, yeah. there could be like sudden vertigo or you know they could lose balance. It could happen to any of the animals. So I think in terms of leadership, patience, understanding, uh, human-elephant bond, he is like the complete, uh, uh, I, I don't know, like poster child in that sense.
But there's another aspect of Gondola that I found very intriguing. And apparently, he used to play a lot of pranks on uh, his uh, handler. And um, so there were times when he was asked to, you know, obviously they were supposed to ferry logs from one place to another. And uh, there were times when he would. Uh, just uh, pretend like we, he could no longer carry those logs and they were getting heavier by the minute and uh, when his um, prank would be you know like when they would say that hey we know what you're trying to do Bandula would apparently just you know crinkle up his eyes and uh, I've read reports where it said that you know it it would look as uh, almost like he was laughing and everybody knew that Bandula was laughing after having like this you know played this prank on the people so it's very interesting because a playful naughty elephant like Bandula had the kind of wisdom and uh, you know a sense of responsibility so it's not so uh, it's just I think this whole range of emotions that he displays it's which is very relatable you know in yeah. human terms it's very relatable so yeah that's one of my favorites Yeah, I love the story that you told. It sounds like a movie because it was very intense and so captivating. And I think that it's such an incredible story. Not only as it, you know, men you mentioned, it highlights a range of emotions it, uh, and, you know, leadership in elephants. It also shows their, you know, internal social structure, I think, and how they can act as mentors because you talked about the other elephants were not going to go up if um, the main one couldn't do it. So I think that's also very relatable, um, you know, quality that we find humans and just the overall story, we learn to appreciate the emotional intelligence of the emotional and otherwise just overall intelligence of these animals without any embellishments. Um, so I think that's very interesting. And um, I wanted to ask, what is the, you know, these stories are, um, I think, more oriented towards children, but not only children, but also, sorry, okay, let me rephrase that. Um, I wanted to ask, um, what would you say is the aim or the impact you are hoping to achieve with this book? Is it more for an educational tool or um, just stories? Like, how would you say, what would you say the aim of this book is? Right. So I think um, it began with this whole idea of um, especially telling children because, you know, the younger generation needs to know that um, every time they go on a vacation and see elephants, either in a zoo or when they take an elephant ride, um, what is exactly going on in the minds or the bodies of um, the animals. So... Mm -hmm. Uh, for that, a lot of, you know, history and context was important. So I know, you know, I have been getting some amount of feedback where um, the readers are not really sure if this is a book for children. But I think I would want um, people of all ages to read it, especially youngsters, um, young adults, everybody, because it is only in the formative years that we can inculcate this whole compassion, uh, sensitivity towards the animal world. Because once you grow up, either you don't have time for it, or you know you don't you have other things to look after in life. So 
I think the focus changes unless they are people who really, really want to get into conservation. But if you start early, there is that hope that, okay, you know, the conversations start early. I believe a lot of schools have nature clubs. And uh, so I'm hoping that, you know, the book finds its way into libraries, into schools, either as supplementary reading or, um, you know, it is something that uh, it could be like a mandatory nature club read, something like that, where um, the opinions of children are not restricted to only what they see around them. Because in this book, you, uh, you have all kinds of elephants. So, you know, there is at least some level of a worldview that I think um, that can be built. So educational too, yes. And uh, I, yeah, I think it's mostly about, um, it's about them realizing what is happening to elephants and understanding that uh, maybe we could also play uh, small or whatever, like big role in helping these animals survive. Yeah, um, I really like that you said the book, the book is open to, you know, interpretation and not restrictive of what the reader should think, um, because I noticed in the book itself, um, there were a lot of elef elements that encouraged critical thinking on the reader's part. Uh, you didn't directly say, you know, what your personal opinion is. You sort of had many rhetorical questions. You integrated facts in there, and that created engagement. And um, like you had seeds of, you know, compassion, anti-captivity, but you didn't um, fully um, elaborate on them. And that allows um, children to form their own opinions, which is a really huge part of education. So I think that um, the style of the book reflects your aim as well. And uh, also, what were some of the challenges that you faced while writing this book? Okay, so there were quite a few, actually. To begin with, I think choosing stories was one of the first issues or challenges because there are so many elephants and um, we were just, uh, you know, so I was wondering, initially it was just supposed to be uh, stories, but uh, I realized that we had to build some kind of uh, context and that is how a lot of the non-fiction uh, elements came into um, the book. So if you see the book, it, you know, the um, structure is such that there is a main story, which is about a particular elephant and Every elephant um, in the book has a name and an identity. So I have chosen such elephants, of course, apart from the ones that are from folk mythologies or stories, because those are generic stories. And um, then to come up with uh, facts or uh, come up with facts as in uh, to get the right kind of facts to go with that story. So there is a box called Elephant that is uh, there in every chapter right below the main story and after that comes the interesting part which is an additional story or information which is connected to the main story or elephant again so you know uh, there were many elements and to bring all of them together structurally was also a challenge uh, fact checking was another challenge because I think over the years uh, several elephants have been named uh, Jumbo or mm -hmm. Modoc. Hmm? So 
I had to be sure that the jumbo, the story of jumbo that I was reading about was the same jumbo that I wanted to put in the book or that chapter. So jumbo, thankfully, was easier in that sense. But there were issues when it came to Modoc because there were, I think, uh, two or three uh, such elephants named Modoc around the same time. So there was some confusion about which story was, uh, I mean, belonged to which Modoc. And um, I also read reports of how, um, you know, the stories that were actually attributed to a particular Modoc were um, incorrect and they should have belonged to the other Modoc. So that, you know, that kind of fact checking uh, took uh, quite some time. And uh, in terms of content, I think toning down the whole exploitation, torture, you know, the training details became important because um, the age group that we were looking at primarily was 9 plus, 10 plus. And uh, you just asked me about target audience or the readership. And a lot of things that maybe teenagers would understand more easily might not be um, simple to explain to somebody who is just nine or 10. Yeah. At the same time, you know, um, it could also have an emotional impact if the child is uh, oversensitive to something like this. Mm -hmm. So there were portions where we did have to, you know, word these things differently or take out some really gory bits. But um, I think I have mindfully put in certain portions so that uh, they are aware that these things do happen. Sometimes I think um, hiding details does not really help the cause. So, mm -hmm. I, uh, you know, so yeah, which, which is how you will find some training details, um, some amount of uh, torture or, you know, gruesome bits, etc. So, uh, that was difficult. Mm. Uh, I think navigating through the various conservation viewpoints was also very tricky because with elephants and especially in India, it is, uh, it's very tricky because um, you can't really immediately, I mean, you can if that is the opinion you believe in. But again, there are larger sentiments that uh, state you know so you can't really go and say something like oh you know elephant rides should be completely banned even if you believe in it because then there will be another group of conservationists who will come and say okay you know this is what you've said but what about mahouts because for generations um, elephant handling and elephant care is the only thing that they know so how are we going to uh, be answerable to these communities what will they do so then again, if you have the whole um, viewpoint of, okay, we shouldn't have any elephants at all in captivity and uh, the ones that are in captivity should be released back into the wild, there will be another viewpoint which, you know, will tell you, um, yeah, rewilding is, you know, interesting. It is happening, but it might not be suitable for all elephants because every individual is not the same. And we might just end up risking the life of you know, particular elephants instead of giving them freedom. So it was very tricky and there were these um, glass floors that I had to walk on because you, know, you, can't really, uh, you can't really say what is right, what is wrong sometimes because um, 
something may be right in one particular case but might not work well in another case so it was very um yeah that was very challenging so i think uh, that is how i uh, thought it is best to put across all views so that the readers themselves can make certain decisions so if a child does not want to go on an elephant ride it would be the child's decision so yeah. you know the action has to come from within which is what you were talking about yeah so that also was a reason for making sure that you know that uh, the book leaves questions for kids to think uh, kids you know i mean even grown ups to think for themselves and uh, take a decision and lastly um i think the challenge that i would want to talk about is the artwork mm-hmm. if you see a lot of uh, books about elephants show you an elephant but they don't show you the actual elephant so when i'm saying actual elephant uh, here a lot of the um, i think almost 90% of the book is based on real elephants so we had to get their appearance right you know so we couldn't just draw an elephant and say this was jumbo or uh, this was bandula or this was uh, you know um tutugamino or uh, this was kandula or something like that we had to look through several image references again even there there was confusion about you know is this the jumbo that we are talking about is this the kandula that we are talking about you know so image references you know um like in the case of indira the elephant uh, who was sent to japan um there were certain things that were just not working out and then every time um, you know the artist and i had to discuss and figure out uh, along with the editor what had to be changed and we realized it was the odd shape of her ears Mm-hmm. and so then we had to go back and make sure that the ears looked um you know somewhat identical to indira's ears from the image so a lot of detailing which uh, readers might not even know but a lot of work has gone into uh, creating these again the other thing was also you know we had to be safe because when it came to temple elephants anybody and they are really popular they have facebook pages okay so anyone could just write back to you and say hey you know you've depicted this particular temple elephant but let me tell you the illustration does not look like the real one so that could hurt sentiments as well you know so we've just been very cautious uh, we tried our best uh in you know uh, representing uh, these elephants and uh, hoping that they resemble the actual ones yeah yeah um i wanted to say that the illustrations are beautiful and i think they they uniquely present each elephant and its personality in a way so you know the fact that yeah. um you and um the illustrator focused on the detail and how that aligns with the story is very interesting and I can also imagine as you're delving into uh, stories from hundreds of years ago it's challenging to find consensus in the many adaptations and you know distortions in the sources and you know separating yes. author's bias with just presenting all the arguments as are all really you know valid challenges and um just going to the end of the book uh, you mentioned that the way we constantly humanize elephants is a threat to their survival and i think um this is um a really powerful message can you elaborate on this yes so it's mostly what we've just spoken about you know so for generations um humans have um, 
captured tamed elephants for various jobs and tasks so be it you know wielding weapons in war um dragging a plow uh, as a farm animal uh, leading processions amidst uh, all that noise and crowd and crackers um entertaining um humans um you know either by wearing clothes or you know pretending to be uh, pretending to box um, in a ring along with a human boxer so you know all all kinds of entertainment acts were there and these are all things that humans do mm-hmm. these are not things that animals uh, or elephants are meant to do you know so uh of course we can't really go back in history in time and change how these things um have brought us here but at least we know that uh going forward we can be more mindful about these things because i believe even today there are elephants who are you know um who are said to be talented and so they paint again divided viewpoints over it because there is um one section saying that oh that is because they love to paint and it comes naturally to them and then there is another section that says no you know they are being poked and prodded to do this it's not natural so it's very cute in that sense to see an elephant paint an image of an elephant uh, but again uh, are they really meant to do that if they do it naturally it's a different thing but if it is something that they are made to do then obviously we are humanizing them so it was um, these activities uh, that i was talking about you know when it came to humanizing uh, elephants and each of these activities whether they are giving rides or whether they are um, you know entertaining you it stresses them out um, there are res- uh, research papers there are conservationists who talk about how you know something um, that children might not even think about a kid might be very in, you know intrigued and happy or delighted to see say a baby elephant in a zoo but uh what if the baby elephant wasn't born in captivity what if the baby elephant had been brought from you know uh, several miles away separated from parents from the herd from the region that it were that was home to the calf you know so those kind of things stress these animals out and that's the kind of questions also that i have left in the book saying that okay you know imagine if this had to happen to a kid mm. taken away from family it's stressful it's traumatic so we should see animals and elephants in the same light i mean it's it's, it's i don't know it's very obvious so uh, so that was an aspect you know it i think um, a lot of these anim- uh, animals have been diagnosed with ptsd post traumatic um, stress uh, syndrome and uh, stress disorder but um, that is i think making them age quickly like if you see in the case of jumbo um when they found or they did research on uh, jumbo's uh, remains they figured that uh, jumbo had died very young you know jumbo i think um, he was around what 39 um when he passed away so it, it's it's very difficult you know um 
but i think uh, when they did test the remains they found that it looked like um, he was much older like a 60 year old elephant sorry he was not 39 jumbo was 24 when he died but when they uh, checked his remains uh, they he i, I think uh, the signs were that he seemed older with all of that walking and stuff so uh we don't realize about you know things about how these small small actions uh, everyday activities that these elephants do at these places are um detrimental to their overall well-being and health simple things like uh, going on an elephant ride it's exciting maybe for a kid to sit on such a huge elephant you know and see the world from that top angle view mm-hmm. but um kids need to know that the elephant's spine is upright so every time there's something heavy that is kept on the elephant's back the spine the bones poke into its flesh and that's not nice because i mean obviously it's painful so again you know humanizing elephants using them for such things um i also came across a lot of uh, research papers or stories where it said that because of these activities um elephants no longer um trust in or fear humans mm. and i think that is bad news if they don't trust in humans it is definitely bad news because anyone who is going to try and help an elephant will or might not be trusted um if they don't fear human beings again you know if there are situations where they might have to be um you know asked to if they have to be moved out of a particular farm or something and if the elephant is not afraid of the uh, you know means that they have used it's not really going to help it is just going to deepen the whole uh, elephant human conflict and a lot of elephants have slowly started showing behavioral patterns that are very unelephant like if i can use that term so i came across stories where you know they would obviously go and take revenge um in some cases they were targeted at the right person someone who had wronged them earlier but there were cases where it was just like a killing spree and there is no way you can explain that behavior we really don't know what was happening in the mind of that elephant and there have been very rare cases of elephants turning man eaters which is very weird because they are herbivores we've known them as herbivores right from you know uh childhood we've only learned that oh elephants whatever uh live on plants barks you know that kind of thing and this is weird because it's also risky to elephants as their digestive systems are not really attuned to eating flesh in that sense or digesting flesh so it is very dangerous uh, we really don't know what the next generation of elephants will be like in terms of temperament in terms of physicality some of them are obviously you know being born without tusks already because of overpoaching so it's you know uh, i i it's very difficult and again that brings me back to another interesting story in the book which uh, is of uh, this elephant called kosik and um, i think he was in captivity for more than a decade he did not uh, he did have another elephant with him in the enclosure uh, but uh, after a while i think he was the only elephant in the enclosure and 
the only interaction he had was with his uh, zookeeper and i think every day the zookeeper would come give him instructions give him food give him a bath etc it became the routine and uh, at some point the zookeeper realized that the elephant was making very different kind of sounds uh, every time he entered the uh, enclosure and i think one fine day he realized that they were not uh, random sounds but they were the actual words that he had been speaking all along every instruction that he had been giving to the elephant day after day for years the elephant had learned to imitate and repeat them oh wow yeah which meant and uh, since this happened in uh, south korea the the words that the elephant spoke were korean and it's weird okay so when i was doing my research for that particular chapter i came across this raw footage of koshik apparently speaking and i watched it on loop because i just could not understand where the elephant was talking because for the longest time i thought the zookeeper was giving the instructions mm-hmm. or the words that were audible were the zookeeper's voice just that i couldn't see him it took me a long time to understand that oh these sounds are actually from the elephant because the elephant is just standing there in that enclosure moving swaying you know randomly spraying water uh uh curling his trunk and taking it to his uh, to i mean mouth you know so i i didn't really think that it was the elephant but after watching it for i don't know how many ever times it it was it, it's mind boggling if i mean at some point if you can see that raw footage of cosex speaking you should everybody should go and watch it because again it's very intriguing it's fascinating but that also means that in loneliness this is what they are resorting to so you know because we don't trumpet they are speaking or trying to speak our language and they are trying to communicate with us so wow yeah um that sounds slightly terrifying but i am definitely yeah. going to check that out and i wasn't aware about you know the few man eating elephants and um them being born without tusks i'm guessing it's somehow also connected to adaptation since we yes. learned about how um elephants without tusks they're less hunted so they grow in population um yes. and uh yeah everything you said was very interesting i think you bring up a very um uh you know you bring up a a line between how we perceive animals on one hand i know when i was started fighting for the elephant in the delhi zoo what if my key arguments was that elephants and humans are so cognitively and emotionally similar so the right yeah. to freedom and companionship should also apply to elephants and like you said you know ptsd is common among uh, both species but i think valuing animals can and should possibly extend from focusing on our similarities to also our differences because in the end they have elephants and all animals have natural instincts and drives that are different from us so imposing yeah. our ideals of entertainment is not justified because of the you know physical and mental consequences so i think this is a very you know insightful conversation i really appreciate your thoughts 
on the book and um uh, and I'm sure the listeners and I are very excited to see what you're working on next. So I wanted to ask, are you currently working on any upcoming projects or books? I've taken a break from books, but I recently finished. Uh, I mean, I was a part of the team that worked on a documentary on sea cucumbers. And um, again, it was a very fascinating um, project because it spoke about um you know, underwater creatures who don't really get the same kind of limelight that, say, elephants or rhinos or tigers or a lot of mammals do. Um, and it's also very difficult in, uh, you know, the case of underwater creatures or marine animals to figure out the kind of poaching that happens because how do you even do a census, right? Mm -hmm. So, um especially in the case of sea cucumbers. So it was very interesting because um, it spoke about, again, this whole nexus of, um, you know, how there are these um, ancient beliefs about how sea cucumbers, uh, I mean, eating sea cucumbers might help you um, heal when it comes to certain illnesses or they cure certain illnesses and that creates a demand and how there are these, um, you know, um, supply-rich countries that are doing this um, even illegally to cater mm -hmm. to these huge demands because there is a lot of money involved and uh, yeah so it was very interesting it was an investigative documentary yeah yeah that sounds amazing and we can definitely uh, link your website and your book on the podcast description so our listeners can check it out and yeah I just want to say thank you uh, this was a very inspiring discussion and I hope you know, your future projects go well. And thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you so much. I, I had a great time. I, I really hope that, you know, um, the wonderful work that All About Animals Radio and All About Elephants is uh, doing, it, it does reach as many people. The work that you, uh, Nikita, in individual capacity, that you have uh, taken up the cause, I, I really hope these things, you know, um, reach some kind of fruition. It, uh, I mean, I hope they bring about the kind of change that we want to see. Mm -hmm.